You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Today is going to be a little bit different than a normal Sunday morning sermon because the text that we are encountering is a little bit different than text which we normally encounter on a normal Sunday morning. And uh, I'm very grateful that we have chosen as a church to adopt a philosophy of preaching that takes us from the beginning of a book all the way through to the end of a book. And one of the benefits of what we call serial exposition, that's when you start at the beginning and go to the end, dealing verse by verse, phrase by phrase, line by line, sometimes word by word. One of the benefits of that is that you cannot skip over passages which are conveniently skipped over all too often when you're in a different book every Sunday and you kind of bounce around and do a topical thing. Um, This is going to be more probably like a seminary lecture than a typical Sunday morning sermon. And the reason that passages like the one before us are conveniently skipped over all too often is not because of its content matter. The woman caught in adultery, the subject matter, that's really not the issue. The issue is the question regarding whether passages like this were actually in the Bible when it was first written, when the books were first written. Sermons like the one you're about to hear do not market well in modern American evangelicalism. This is not the type of sermon you preach and expect the people who normally have a hard time staying awake are going to be riveted and hanging upon every word or that in the coming weeks your CD duplicator is going to break down because you've been burning so many CDs, or that your servers are going to crash because this is the most downloaded sermon in uh, church history. It's just not the case. This is really a very difficult issue. Modern American evangelicals do not like to do the difficult work of talking about things like the transmission of our New Testament and textual variants and passages which have questionable um, integrity or question marks attached to them as to whether or not they were in the original or not. Let's face it, for most American evangelicals, church history does not go back much further than Billy Graham. You go back more than a 100 years ago, and most people are not interested in hearing about anything that happened back then, and they're not interested in learning about it, and they're really not interested in whether or not it has anything to do with their life today. So you will notice as we dive into John chapter 7, verse 53, through 8, verse 11, that in most of your Bibles, unless you're reading a really, really old copy of a older translation like the King James, for instance, the New King James, you will notice that there's probably a little text, a little mark in your text. Your text, 753 through 811, is probably either italicized or set apart in brackets. Do you notice that? How many of you don't have that in your Bible? Anybody? A couple have no marks or amendations at all having to do with this text. Okay, in mine, here's what it reads. As soon as I find it. In the NASB, it says, Later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, numbering it as John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Now, we run into that once in a while in our Bibles, in our New Testament particularly. You'll run across a note next to a text or a textual variant, and it'll say some manuscripts omit this word, or some manuscripts add this word or this phrase. Some manuscripts don't contain this, something like that. We read that about John 7, verse 53 through 8, verse 11. And this is one of three large, um, very notable passages in the New Testament that have a question mark sort of attached to its legitimacy. The other two, and you might be familiar with this, is something called the 
the comma Johannian in 1 John 5, verse 7. Uh, and then the long ending of Mark, Mark 16, verses 9 through, what's well, the end of the chapter, 9 through 20. You will see some sort of a similar mark next to those verses. And then there's this one, what's called the pericope adultery, which is the passage or the section that has to do with the woman caught in adultery. Those three passages in your New Testament are sort of set apart and, and marked in your margin as questionable. As we go through this, I kind of boiled everything down to basically three questions that we need to answer. The first is this. Why is there uncertainty regarding this passage? Number two, what do we do with this passage? And number three, what do we learn from this passage? So those three questions. Why is there uncertainty regarding this passage? Why is it that some manuscripts omit it? Or you might pose the question a different way. Why is it that some manuscripts include it? And what do we do with this passage? Do we throw up our hands and panic and say, Oh, our God has not preserved his word for us. And so therefore, we need to question everything in the New Testament. Everything's up for grabs. And we can't know for certain anything that was written originally. Is that our response? Or, more importantly, how should we view this? Should we view this as part of the original? Or should we view this as something that was added later? And then the third question is, what do we learn from it? And when we answer that question, we're going to study the passage just like we've studied every other passage in the Gospel of John so far. We're just going to go through and expound the passage. So those are our three questions. So let me give you kind of an outline of where we're going in the coming weeks. I was, this is what I was hoping to do today. It didn't quite work out this way. This is what I geared up to do. I geared up to deal with all three of those questions. In other words, I was going to answer the question, why is there uncertainty about the question, uh, the passage? What should be our view of it? And then I was going to give you basically an exposition of the entire passage. But it didn't work out that way. So here's what we're doing. Today, I'm introducing this passage and we're going to deal with those first two questions. Why is there uncertainty regarding these verses? And number two, what do we make of that? And then next week, we're going to study this passage, this text, in an expository, exegetical fashion, just like we have everything else in the Gospel of John, and ask ourselves, what do we learn from it about Jesus? The following Sunday, that would be three, two Sundays from today, the the next Sunday, we're going to step back and introduce the rest of John chapter 8, and then the next Sunday, we will dive in at verse 12 and deal with it and continue our exposition through the Gospel of John. Now, I know that in a gathering like this today, there are three different types of people here. There are some of you who are well-versed in what we are discussing. You have listened to tapes. You have, you have read books on this subject. You are familiar with the issues of textual transmission and textual variation and textual families and, and saying words like Byzantine text and textus receptus and things like that. You're familiar with all of these terms. And so what you're going to learn today is probably not going to be any new information. A lot of this will be review. There's probably a second group of people here, and, and those, this I think would probably be most of you. Most of you here have probably read the footnotes like this because you have a MacArthur Study Bible or some other good Bible translation or a good study Bible. And so you read the, the footnotes like that. Manuscripts do not contain these words, and you're not, you're not quite sure what to make of that. You're not sure if this should call into question your confidence in Scripture and God's ability to preserve His Word, or, or you're not even sure how it is that manuscripts can differ And how it is that we get passages like this one here, which are sort of sketchy in the manuscript tradition. And you're maybe not even sure what manuscript tradition is. Then there's another group of people, and I think there's probably a very minority of you. You think that textual variant refers to some prairie rodent. You have no idea what a textual variant is. In fact, until this morning, you had no idea that there was anything like a textual variant, or what it is, or how it got there. And this is the first time you've even heard the term Byzantine text or textus receptus, and it sounds like a foreign language to you. Until today, you you had no idea there was any question about any passage in your New Testament. Well, I want to be able to address all three groups of people, and here's my goal. 
I don't want to just brush by something like this because when churches do that, Christians become easy targets for critics and skeptics of Scripture who pull out things like this and try to destroy your confidence in Scripture. And I want to guard you against that. I believe that we have in our laps today the inerrant, infallible, divinely inspired, sovereignly preserved word of the living God and that we have everything he wants us to have in his word. I believe that with all of my heart. My approach to preaching and everything we do as a church is reflective of that conviction and that commitment. But I want to deal with this issue and the questions surrounding it so that you have some idea of how to stand up for it or at least what it is that we're talking about when we read footnotes like this. You guys know what this is? These are notes. I usually don't bring these up into the pulpit with me, but there's a reason I brought them up today. It's because you're about to get a whole lot of information, so I want you to buckle in and do your best to follow along with me because we have a tremendous amount of ground to cover. Now, there are two camps regarding this passage of Scripture. Two camps, two positions. On the one side, there are those who say, what you have in front of you, John 7, 53 through 8, verse 11, is part of the original manuscript. When John sat down in Ephesus and wrote his gospel, that passage was in there. Somehow it got removed or deleted or failed to get copied or something in other manuscripts, but when John put pen to parchment, that passage was written, and there's no need to question it. There's no need to discuss it. There are even some in this camp who would say, if they had their way, it's not very many, but there are some who would say, we shouldn't even footnote it because all that does, all that serves to do is undermine people's confidence in Scripture. Then there are some people in another camp who would say, that they don't believe that John 7:53 through 8 verse 11 was part of John's original document that it was at some point added later to the manuscripts of the New Testament somehow it got attached the issue of inspiration is a separate question preservation is a separate question whether or not it was part of the original they would say it's questionable the problems with that passage are so overwhelming as to cause us to legitimately question whether it was part of that original document or not and there are some in this camp though no, not many not all who would say not only should we footnote it, we should remove it from the text and put it sort of as a footnote to the Gospel of John. We should take it out entirely. It's that questionable. And they would say the same thing about the long ending of Mark and 1 John 5, 7 and a couple of other little passages, variants like that. I want to lay all the cards on the table and tell you where I am at this morning in which one of these camps I fall into. Before I do, let me remind you that your view of John 7:53 through 8 verse 11 is in no way indicative of your orthodoxy. If you are in this camp that believes it is authentic, you're not a heretic. And if you are in this camp that questions its authenticity, you're not a heretic. There is no doctrine of scripture just like Mark 16, 1 John 5:7, there is no doctrine of scripture or detail in this text that is essential to the Christian faith. So it doesn't matter which one of these camps you are in, let me repeat you are not a heretic. Now, where do I fall on that spectrum? I fall over here in this camp. By the way, whichever camp I'm in, I'm getting in trouble with somebody. I fall over here in this camp. I don't believe this was part of John's original writing. I believe it's my conviction that the manuscript problems with this passage are to me insurmountable. I think that it was probably a real historical incident that was cir circulated orally amongst primarily the Western church, because those type of manuscripts that we find in it, primarily among the Western church, eventually it was written down, maybe by an apostle, maybe by somebody other than an apostle, and it kind of floated around, and eventually it landed in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, verse 11. Is it inspired? I, I don't know. It might be. could be. I, I'm, I'm willing to throw my hat in the ring and say it is. 
But whether it was part of what John originally wrote or not, I don't think it is. So I'm over here in this camp. It doesn't mean that I don't think the passage is valuable. It doesn't mean that I don't think the passage has been preserved. It obviously has. It doesn't mean I don't think it's inspired and we can't learn anything from it. It doesn't mean any of that. In fact, next week I'm going to preach the passage just like I do every other passage with John. See, here's the... Here's the dilemma that anybody who teaches through the passage like this is faced with, and this is why it's avoided, is because as a teacher, I am constantly aware that I'm going to be judged for everything I say up here. And I, I take that with great fear and trepidation. So if I skip over the passage and it turns out to be inspired and preserved for a reason, then I'm neglecting a passage of Scripture. If I preach the passage and it happens to not be inspired and preserved for a reason, then I fall on the other side. It's a no-win situation, right? Then I'm treating something as Scripture which is not Scripture. So I'm willing to kind of... Keep one foot in each camp, and let's just say I believe it to be an authentic, literal, historical account. I'm willing to preach, preach it as scripture, but I would say that there are issues resolved, revolving around this text that you and I need to be aware of. William Hendrickson, a good, solid, conservative, reformed commentator, in his commentary on John, sums up my position. Actually, sums up his own position, but I happen to concur with it. And William Hendricks says this, Our final conclusion then is this, though it cannot now be proved that this story formed an integral part of the fourth gospel, neither is it possible to establish the opposite with any degree of finality. Let me pause there for just a second. He's saying, you can't make the case that it wasn't there with any degree of certainty, nor can you make the case that it was there with any degree of certainty. So here's what he says. We believe, moreover, that what is here recorded really took place and contains nothing that is in conflict with the apostolic spirit, Hence, instead of removing the section from the Bible, it should be retained and used for our benefit. Ministers should not be afraid to preach sermons on it. On the other hand, all the facts regarding the textual evidence should be made known. So that's what we're going to do. Today I'm just going to give you all of the facts regarding the textual evidence. And I'm going to answer the question, why is there doubt about this passage, this particular passage? Why is there doubt about it? And we're going to address the issues of that doubt. Regarding this passage, there are two types of evidence. Internal evidence and external evidence. External evidence has to do with the manuscripts themselves. Internal evidence has to do with the words, what we have written. So there are two arguments, one dealing with external external evidence, manuscripts, and one dealing with internal evidence, the text itself, that cause people to doubt the legitimacy of this passage. Concerning external evidence, that is the manuscripts, let's deal with that first. There is, unless you have a, a really lengthy study Bible, this is not the stuff that you're going to see in the footnote. There are some early manuscripts which do not contain this passage of John's Gospel. And it's not like one or two really quirky, weird ones buried in caves by radical people who had a habit of deleting things from Scripture. It's not that type of evidence. It is a lot of different early manuscripts, some of them dating back to within decades of the original writing, some of them very reliable upon which we rely for a lot of things that do not contain this passage of Scripture. It's a diverse group of manuscripts. Further, this passage is not in some of the translations that were made from the Greek into other languages like Latin and Syriac. They omit this passage. None of the early church fathers commented on this passage. Even the ones who did commentaries on the Gospel of John, verse by verse, they omitted any commentary on this passage. Augustine alluded to this passage. Others alluded to it. But nobody commented on it or commentated on it as if it were actually inspired scripture. In fact, the first person to comment on this passage in his commentary on John was Euthymius Zygabinus. I say, did I sp- pronounce that right? Of course I did. You just heard it, right? 
He didn't comment on it until the 12th century, and even he noted that many reliable manuscripts did not contain the passage. On top of that, when the manuscript, or when this passage is contained in a certain manuscript, a Greek text, it is often set apart with an asterisk or with an obelisk, which is a little hyphen mark, that notes it as spurious or questionable or doubtful. So even those who included it in some manuscripts included it with a little note that said, we're not sure about this. Further, when this passage is found in the different manuscript families, it's not always found in this location. There are manuscripts which place this questionable text after John 7, verse 36, instead of 7, 52, after John 7, 44, and there is also a manuscript that has this text as a footnote at the Gospel of John, placed after John 21, verse 25. There's one manuscript, manuscript known as F13, which places this entire text after Luke 21, 38. It's not even in John's Gospel, it's in Luke's Gospel. You can see why it's questionable. Now James White, in his book, The King James Only Controversy, which deals with textual issues and textual variants like this, James White writes this, Such moving about by a body of text is plain evidence of its later origin and the attempt on the part of scribes to find a place where it fits. Such is not the earmark of an original passage in the gospel. End quote. Now that, that's a powerful statement. Listen to it. You don't find John 3.16 crammed in somewhere in Matthew or Luke or in the middle of Ephesians. You don't find what we consider to be legitimate, authentic passages of the Gospels which bounce all over in the manuscript tradition looking for a place to fall. That's not the earmark of a legitimate passage. The fact that it occurs all over the place in these manuscript traditions is evidence that scribes saw it as valuable. They just didn't know where it fit. Somehow they didn't know it fit. And some of them left it out. Some of them said better to insert it than to delete things out of Scripture so they would include it with a note. Something marking it as questionable or spurious or that it needed a home. The bouncing around of a passage like that is not something that we find in the gospel records or in the manuscripts. Right? The manuscripts are not like a chunk of puzzle pieces you sort of put together and, okay, well, we put it together in the order that we find it now. That's not how it works. You compare manuscript with manuscript, and you find harmony between the manuscripts as to the integrity of them and the order of verses and the order of words and things like that. This passage is unique. It bounces all over the place. And the argument is that's, that's not the earmark of an unquestionable passage of Scripture. The fact that it bounces around like that is proof of its questionability. Then there is internal evidence. Internal evidence. That's the external evidence. The internal evidence against the passage, and I'm going to give you the evidence for the passage here in just a second. The internal evidence against the passage would be, number one, some of the unique phrases that you occur in this passage. You can see it, for instance, John 8, verse 3. The text says, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now that little phrase right there is not a phrase that occurs anywhere else in John's Gospel. Usually when John talks about the Pharisees, he, he links them up with the chief priests. Earlier in John chapter 7, he did this very same thing. The chief priests and the Pharisees. The chief priests and the Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees is a phrase that you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but never in John, except for this one passage. Now, that piece of evidence alone is not sufficient to call it into question. If this were an unquestionable text, we would see the change of wording like that, and we would look at it, and we would say, now why does John change the wording like that? It wouldn't cause us to question the legitimacy of the text, because not every change of language indicates a totally different author. But when you have already a text that's in question, you see a phrase like that that occurs nowhere else. It's out of character of John. It's just kind of one of those things where you say, well, that's just another one of those pieces of evidence. That argument enough doesn't hold all the water, but it is an argument. Further, the placement of the text is another internal uh, internal evidence argument, you know, with place of different verses. 
Another internal evidence against the passage would be that it seems to interrupt the flow of the text. I want you to imagine in your minds that you were to take John 7.53 through 8 verse 11 out of there entirely and you were just to read through chapter 7, get to verse 52 and continue on to 8 verse 12. And following, here's what you would find. You would find going back to 7 verse 37, 38 and 39, Jesus keying off of one of the two ceremonies that was part of the Feast of Tabernacle celebration. Remember the two ceremonies? The water pouring ceremony and the water light, no, not water lighting, Lamp lighting, the water pouring ceremony and the lamp lighting ceremony. In John 7, 37 to 39, Jesus keys off of the water pouring ceremony and says, I am the living water, come to me. And then you have the Pharisees' response to that. Then in John 8, verse 12, you have Jesus keying off of the second part of the ceremony, which was the lamp lighting ceremony and saying, I am the light of the world. And then the rest of John chapter 8 is the Pharisees' response to that. So it fits the pattern. If you pull that out of there, it, it's, it's not like a whole doesn't even exist. The text flows together well without this text right in the middle of it. That make sense? Okay, so that's one of them. Now let me give you the other side. Now I've argued against it. Actually, I've argued for my position. Let me give you a couple of arguments on the other side that would argue for its legitimacy. There are some who would say, you ought not to trust any manuscript that doesn't have this in it, which I think is kind of assuming the point you're trying to prove from my perspective at least, but they would say that the reliable manuscripts include it and the unreliable ones don't. What you end up doing if you do that, by the way, is you end up excluding a whole bunch of very reliable, very good New Testament manuscripts, and then you've got a problem with that, and I don't think that that's good scholarship. Others would say, no, no, it doesn't interrupt the flow of the text. It fits beautifully with the flow of the text, because you see in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world, and he does this right on the heels of this woman who is walking and living in darkness. And the Pharisees are walking and living in darkness. And so you see the darkness of their heart in this episode, in in the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. And then Jesus, right on the heels of forgiving this woman, declares himself to be the light of the world. So it's a great contrast as far as they're concerned. Also, you find here a reproof or a rebuke on the part of Jesus of those who had just responded to him at the end of John chapter 7, the Pharisees, who had criticized anybody who spoke positively of him. Here you have Jesus sort of getting his part back and reproving and rebuking their hypocrisy. Further, they would say, keeping this text in here also fits the pattern that we see for the last couple chapters of John. In John chapter 5, we have an incident, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, followed by a sermon, which keys off of the incident. In John chapter 6, you have an incident, which is the feeding of the 5,000, followed by a sermon, the bread of life discourse. In John chapter 8, we have an incident, the woman caught in adultery, followed by a sermon, which is his light of the world discourse. So they would say the pattern fits perfectly as you go all the way through there. And if you keep it here, it seems to read just right. Now that's that side. Now how many of you are convinced on one side or the other? How many of you are totally confused by it? Most of you are totally confused. That's okay. I'll keep plodding on in the confusion. Some, oh, I actually say most notably Augustine, who's an early church father, argued that this passage was in John's original gospel, but that it was removed by an overzealous scribe. And the reason that overzealous scribes removed the passage was because it appears in John chapter 8 as if Jesus is being soft on the sin of adultery. The woman is brought to him, and he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. It seems like he's soft-peddling it. So Augustine suggested that overzealous scribes who wanted to protect us from women who might use this passage as an excuse to commit adultery removed that because it was sort of morally objectionable. You follow that argument? And let me give you some reasons why I don't think that that holds water. First, 
we have no other example ever in the manuscript tradition of a scribe who copied Scripture removing passages of Scripture because it was theologically or morally objectionable. Scribes did not do that. They viewed what they were copying as the divine word of God to be protected and to preserve. That's why they were copying it to begin with. If they didn't have a high view of Scripture, they wouldn't have copied it. They copied it because they had a high view of it, and they did their level best to make sure that they got it exactly right every time that they copied it. You just don't have in the manuscript scribes willy-nilly removing passages that are morally or theologically objectionable. A second thing I would point out is that if that's what a scribe did, why did they delete chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, verse 2? If they only want to remove the part about adultery, why didn't they leave those three verses in? Because it creates a great transition and makes sense. Read verse 752 with me. They answered him, You're not also from Galilee. Are you search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee? Everyone went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. Verse 12. Then Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Now, had they left 753 through 8 verse 2 in there, it would have made a great transition. It would have made sense. It would have been natural. But yet, every time this passage is absent, the entire passage is absent. If scribes wanted to delete what was objectionable, they would have only deleted what was objectionable and not those three verses, which would have made a great transition for this passage. Third, if scribes removed this, because it was Jesus was being soft on the sin of adultery. Let me ask you this. Why didn't they remove chapter 4 with the woman at the well? Why would they leave that in there? Because I'll tell you something. John chapter 4 is even softer on the sin of adultery than John chapter 8 is. Because at least in John 8, Jesus says, Go and sin no more. He calls what she did sin and calls her to repentance. You don't have a condemnation of the woman's sin like that in John chapter 4. If scribes were deleting passages that were morally objectionable and were to, to, to keep people from using it as an excuse. Why didn't they delete John chapter 4? Why just this passage? And fourth, I would ask you this. Do you and I really want to argue that this was the practice of early scribes? Think about this for a second. To argue that a scribe did this is to concede to a skeptic ground that you do not want to concede. Number one, because it's not true. And number two, because it undermines the rest of Scripture. Do you really want to concede and argue that scribes and people who translated the New Testament removed content willy-nilly or added content as they saw fit because it was morally and theologically objectionable? There are a lot of other passages in the New Testament which have been misused and abused and misunderstood that they could have removed, but they didn't. If that was the practice of scribes, and it wasn't, there's a lot of other passages that would be missing. So I don't believe that that was what scribes did. So then we have to answer the question, Why then is this missing from some of the manuscripts? My position is that because it was never there to begin with. Probably a piece of oral history that later got attached to the Gospel of John. Doesn't mean we should neglect it or take it out. We should treat it and study it and learn from it, but not view it as original. Now what is our response to this? Let me give you a couple things not to do. Number one, we don't call those who are in the other camp from us heretics or liberals. Right? I mean, if you're over here and you think this is original... You don't throw stones at the other guy and say, oh, you're just a bunch of scripture-denying, higher critic, heretic, hackmeisting liberals who want to take everything good out of the Bible. John, Matthew, Mark 16 and John chapter 8. You don't do that. I mean, honestly, if you're in this camp, you cannot, with any pretense of intellectual honesty, suggest to me that guys like William Hendrickson and J.C. Ryle and John MacArthur 
and James White have a low view of Scripture. You cannot do that. It is not a low view of Scripture that causes somebody to question the authenticity of these verses. On the other hand, if you're over here in this camp, you don't look at those guys and say, you're just a bunch of people who want to add to Scripture. I mean, anything that comes from the early church, you just want to throw it into our canon. It's not fair to call names. So let's keep all of our name calling from the, for those who are outside the camp. The second thing we do not do in response to this is to panic and throw up our hands and say, oh, we can't trust Scripture. I mean, there's just absolutely, we can have no confidence in anything that's written in our New Testament because we have variants and it hasn't been preserved in a photocopy, a photocopier way since the early church began. Now, what I want to do now is I want to give you a little bit of information that will bolster your confidence in this. And I, I think Hope explained to you how it is that God has preserved his word for us and why it is that we can have confidence in his word. Let me suggest a couple of resources, by the way. The book I already mentioned, written by James White, The King James Only Controversy, deals with textual variants, textual issues, textual transmission, history of the New Testament, different translations, history of the English Bible. I think the single best, uh, very accessible book on a very technical subject that I have ever found or have ever found written. He, he does an excellent job of it. King James Only Controversy. The second resource, if you want this, uh, several years ago we did a series of new... T- uh, Sunday- Let me slow down so my brain can catch up with my mouth. We did a series of adult Sunday school classes on the subject of textual transmission, the history of the English Bible. It's 22 lessons. It's called God Wrote a Book. If you're only going to get one of those resources, then forget what I did. Get James White's book, The King James Only Controversy. God has preserved, this is the bottom line, God has preserved his word for us in two ways, through two means, okay? Number one, through the sheer volume of New Testament manuscripts that have been preserved for us. It is not that we have one document that has been photocopied for 2,000 years. It is that we have thousands of documents, thousands of documents that we can compare and contrast and we can arrive at a reconstruction of the original documents based upon the copies of the manuscripts that we have made. And we have an embarrassing amount, and by embarrassing I mean huge, huge amount of New Testament manuscripts available to us for that task. Let me give you some numbers. Just of Greek New Testament manuscripts, there are over 5,600 portions or holes of Greek New Testament manuscripts that we can use. On top of that, there are 10,000 Latin manuscripts, which are manuscripts which were copied early, very early, from the Greek originals into the Latin language, which was a language, a, a trade language of the day, a Latin manuscripts that we can use to compare and contrast. On top of that, there are 9,300 other different versions and different translations of the New Testament that we can compare and contrast. So that's 5,600 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 other versions of the New Testament, ain't all ancient documents. Furthermore, those manuscripts go back to within not hundreds of years, not centuries, not millennia, but within decades, sometimes years, of the original writing of those autographs. That is incredible. To give you some idea of how reliable your New Testament is, let me compare it with the next most reliable book from antiquity, which would be Homer's Iliad. Homer wrote his Iliad in 900 B.C. The earliest manuscript that we have, the earliest copy of Homer's Iliad, comes from 400 B.C., which is a 500-year gap. You compare that to the New Testament, which boils down to a couple of years, even within decades of the original writing. The next best attested book of antiquity is a 500-year gap between the original and the earliest copy we have. Furthermore, we only have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad, ancient manuscripts. Compare that to the 5,600 just of the Greek manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. It's not even close. Not even close. The, the New Testament is in a class entirely by itself when it comes to manuscript evidence from antiquity. Let me give you another statistic. 
Following the writing of the New Testament from the year 100 to 400, there was a 300-year time period there known as the early church fathers. The early church fathers wrote prolifically. These men wrote constantly, uh, dozens and hundreds of them, and we have the collection of their writings from the early church fathers. You can go online and get them for free, or you can buy them from CBD in a, in a set of books this big. In the early church fathers, they wrote not only prolifically, but they, they quoted prolifically from the New Testament. In the early church fathers, there are 86,000 quotations of the New Testament, sometimes a chapter at a time. So let me give you this. If you were to take the 5,600 Greek New Testament manuscripts and burn them, take the 10,000 Latin manuscripts and burn them, and take the 9,300 other versions from antiquity and burn them, you would be able to reconstruct the entire New Testament just from the writings of the early church fathers, the entire New Testament with the exception of only 11 verses. You can have confidence that what you have in your lap is the written, inspired Word of God. The sheer number of manuscripts available to us is the way in which God has preserved His Word for us. Now, are there variants between different manuscripts? Sure there are. Did, 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 did scribes make copying errors? Sure they did. Things like transposing letters, sometimes transposing words, sometimes accidentally leaving out a line. Look, when I, when I sit down to write a sermon or newsletter article, sometimes I have my book right here in a well-lighted office with a, t- a screen in front of me that does its best to catch my errors. And I type out things on that. And I'm looking at one book, and I'm going line by line down the book, and I look back and I compare it with the original, and I reread it to make sure that I'm not misquoting something. And you know what I find? Sometimes I find that I switched words. Sometimes I find that when my eye got to the end of the one line, I went back to the beginning and I skipped a line, or I started another line and I typed out that same line two times. Those are the types of mistakes that you find in the New Testament. But look, just because somebody makes a spelling mistake doesn't mean you can have no confidence in what the original document was, does it? You can't. So you get spelling mistakes, you get transposition of letters, you get transposition of sometimes words, you get sometimes names or places that have changed because when the manuscript was written, this city was called this, but today it's called that, and so a scribe will make that change or that adaptation in the margin of a manuscript. Those are the type of variants that we have. But just because you have a few of those doesn't mean you can't have any confidence in what was originally written, does it? So God has preserved his word through the number of manuscripts that he has been preserved for us. Second, through the rapid spread of manuscripts across vast regions. Rapid spread. So it's not like when we go to translate the Gospel of John, we go to some uh, room in Spain where a monk has the Gospel of John under lock and key. And it's been that way for 2,000 years, just one copy in one location. And they go in and they make changes or additions and deletions as they see fit. That's not the case with the New Testament. What you had in the writing of the New Testament, there's evidence from this, even in Paul's own writings about how this happened. You had books that were written that were copied sometimes multiple times, one generation of copies. One book could be copied, say, a dozen, half a dozen, two dozen times, and that would be spread all over the Roman Empire. So you could have within the within even a few years of John writing his gospel, you could have copies of that in Spain, in Turkey, in France, in Rome, in Jerusalem, all over northern Africa, just within a couple of years. It was the massive spread of documents all over the Roman world which preserved the integrity of the New Testament against people who might want to intentionally change it. Let me give you an illustration or example. Let's say that on Tuesday morning in the Daily Bee, your name comes out in the police blotter. And it's not flattering. And after a couple of months, you decide, you know what, I'd like to change that so that it will not be preserved for posterity. What do you have to do? You're going to have to round up every copy of the Daily Bee, aren't you? And make the change in all of those. Do you know where every copy of the Daily Bee is to make changes like that? You don't have a clue, do you? Why? Because they're in homes and on coffee tables and doctor's offices and recycling bins and, and caves and, and floorboards of trucks all over this county and three other counties. They're all over the place. You can't make changes even if you wanted to. 
It's the same thing in the early church in the New Testament. Let's say some scribe in the year 300 decided, you know what, I want to delete all that about Jesus um, having a wife. And it's in the Gospel of John, so we want to delete that. You know what he's going to have to do? There's 500 copies of the Gospel of John ranging from Spain to Turkey to Jerusalem, all over northern Africa. That priest or that Christian would be lucky if he could locate five copies of the Gospel of John, let alone all 500 to make changes. So God has preserved his word through the number of manuscripts that were made and the rapid spread of those manuscripts against both intentional and unintentional changes. Even if somebody had been inclined to make the changes, they wouldn't have had access to make the changes. So you can have the confidence that what you hold in your lap is God's inspired, preserved word for you, and you can trust it, you can believe it, love it, study it, memorize it, use it, and rely upon it, and base your confidence for eternity upon this text. Now, one last thing. There's a man named Bart Ehrman, who's a critic of Christianity, graduated from Moody Bible Institute. He criticizes the New Testament, and uh, he has since become an atheist, and he thinks the Bible's filled, the New Testament's filled with errors and contradictions. And here's how Bart Ehrman argues. And he would use, say, say for instance, John chapter 7. Here's his argument. I want you to pay attention, because there's the flaw in this thinking, and I want you to see if you can pick it up before I point it out. Here's his argument. We have in our New Testament here, in the very pages, a passage that we believe was not there in the original. Since that was not there in the original, then we know that somebody must have added it. We don't know how, we don't know why. Since we know that that happened, that people added things to Scripture, therefore we can have no confidence what the original text said. You follow that? Since we know this happened... We confess that it happens, therefore we can have no confidence in what the original text said. There is a fatal flaw in that argument. And once I point it out, it's going to become obvious to you. Here it is. How do we know this was not in the original? Because we know what? What was in the original? Is that too obvious? We can identify textual variants. We can count textual variants. We can spot textual variants. The only way you can identify a textual variant, what shouldn't or is questionable, of questionable character, is if you have at least some degree of certainty as to what the original was. You and I know what the original was. Look, if all of the New Testament was this questionable as this passage, then this passage wouldn't be questionable, would it? It's like the saying, if everybody wins, then nobody wins. Right? It's the same thing. If the whole New Testament is unreliable, how do you know that this passage is questionable? You wouldn't know that unless you knew what the original said. Since we can identify what the original says with a great degree of certainty, we know that this passage has a degree of question associated with it. So now that we have done, gone through all of that work, what do we do with this passage? I've answered one of the three questions. Here's the second question. Don't look at your watch and panic because the answer to this one is real short. What do we do now with this passage? We know why there's question regarding the passage. What do we do with it? We ask ourselves a series of very simple questions. Does this passage contain anything which contradicts other passages of Scripture? doesn't. Does this passage contain any information about Jesus that contradicts what we read elsewhere in the Gospels? It doesn't. Can we answer this question with any degree of certainty that it should be removed from our New Testament? We cannot answer that. So what do we do with it? We preach it. And that's what I'm going to do. But not next week. Not this week. Next week. And that's what we'll do next week. So you've got that now, and you've done the hard lifting, or the heavy lifting, the hard work of dealing with these issues, and I hope that that has, to some degree at least, um, helped you to have a confidence in what it is that God has written for you and he has preserved for you. Let's pray together.
Father, we do thank you for your word and for the fact that you, by your sovereignty and by your providence, have guarded your word and preserved your word in ways to keep it from both intentional and unintentional changes. We thank you that you've done this by your sovereignty and that we have the uh, confidence that we can in your word. It is truth and it is light, and uh, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in it. Give us that confidence in your word and what you have revealed, and may we never bow to the whims of skeptics who might question it or criticize it, for we know that it is truth, and you have opened our eyes to the fact that it is truth. Be praised now, we pray, and glorified through our confidence, which you give to us in your word, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.